0: The Gerontological Society of America Momentum Discussions. Welcome to the Momentum Discussion podcast series, where researchers, educators, and practitioners stimulate dialogue on trends with great momentum to advance gerontology. Welcome to the GSA podcast. My name is Dr. Melissa Batchelor, and today we'll be talking about understanding COPD. I am a nurse, nurse practitioner, and nurse scientist, and I'm currently an associate professor at the George Washington University School of Nursing and director for our Center for Aging, Health, and Humanities. I also host a podcast called This Is Getting Old: Moving Towards an Age-Friendly World, that you can check out on my website, MelissaBphD.com, or on my YouTube channel, Melissa Today's podcast is focused on understanding COPD, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Barbara Yahn, who is a physician and chief clinical officer at the COPD Foundation and member of the GSA Advisory Board for the What's Hot? Recognizing and Treating COPD in Older Adults. So to get started, um, welcome Dr. Yawn, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got interested in COPD.
1: Thank you very much, I appreciate it. And my story of getting interested in COPD goes back a long ways. Uh, Actually, someone asked me if I didn't want to study COPD in family medicine, because I'm a family physician, uh, back probably in the late 90s, and I said, you've got to be kidding. There's nothing we really can do for people with COPD, and then turned my attention primarily to asthma, for which we had more therapies, uh, and was on the National Asthma Guidelines in 2007 but realized as I was working with people and doing education about asthma that COPD was becoming more and more of an issue uh, in primary care, more recognition that it existed, that people had a huge burden, and that it wasn't being studied And there were better therapies. So all of those things together made me realize this was an area that really deserved more primary care attention uh, since about 80% of all COPD management occurs within the primary care setting. So it's a gap. I identified and decided I should try to help fill it.
0: And so for someone who may not be familiar with asthma and COPD, kind of what are the the similarities
1: and differences? Because I actually had somebody ask me that question um, earlier this week. That's a very complicated question uh, for some people. Other times it's very obvious. In general, asthma usually is a childhood and young adult condition. That's usually where it starts and then continues across the lifespan, although it can be first recognized in uh, middle and older adults, uh, especially women. But the clinical characteristics, are for asthma that is variable in most people from day to day. They have a good day, a bad day, they'll have short bursts of symptoms, whereas COPD, which is more likely to show up in older adults, usually not diagnosed till after the age of 50 to 60, 75% of the time is associated with long-term smoking. COPD is progressive, and most people with COPD present with cough, with shortness of breath, both of those being worse with activity. And over a period of years, it will usually be worse. The shortness of breath will be triggered by less activity. Now, one of the interesting things that happens with that, though, with COPD is people fail to recognize their symptoms. It's like, oh, I'm uh, just getting old. I am out of shape. I'm overweight. This cough is a normal smoker's cough. Well, The first thing I want to say, and you know this very well, Melissa, there is no, quote, normal smoker's cough. If you're a smoker and you're coughing on a regular basis, you need to get in and get it checked out. Uh, And it's true that some people's shortness of breath may have something to do with being overweight and out of shape, but that doesn't mean you can't have COPD also. And so you need to think about those and talk to somebody if you have those symptoms, uh, because those are very common in COPD. Less common to be progressive like that in asthma and to always be triggered by activity with asthma compared to COPD.
0: Okay, well thank you for differentiating those two um, for us. So um, maybe let's talk a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like as the Chief Clinical Officer at the COPD Foundation.
1: Sure, the COPD Foundation is uh, basically a patient advocacy organization. Uh, Our mission is to improve the lives of people living with COPD, and that means the people who actually have the COPD, but their families and caregivers also, uh, trying to take a a more holistic view. Uh, And my role is to help make sure that the information we share and the things that we advocate for uh, are clinically appropriate and can do things for the clinical side in addition to some of the other aspects uh, of COPD. So I will help make sure our educational programs, for exact example, are accurate. Uh, that we, when we started working with COVID and COPD, making sure that we share the data. Uh, For example, one of the questions people had with COVID and COPD was, well, it's hard to wear a mask. Should I just not wear a mask at all? Is it dangerous to wear a mask with COPD? Uh, The answer is, no, it is not dangerous, and yes, you should, and if it takes a while to get used to it, it's fine. But that's the kind of question that I might help uh, address at the COPD Foundation as well as medications, how do I use medications, what should I think about for medications, what kinds of medications are available, what kind of advances are there in medication, in oxygen therapy, for example, in pulmonary rehabilitation, and the full spectrum of things uh, that are important to people living with COPD and could be impacted by health care.
0: Okay. So um, let's maybe talk a little We've talked about how COPD is typically um, in older, you know, some something that impacts older adults. So what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about older adults that have COPD?
1: Well, for a long time, it was an old white guy's disease. Uh, you know, that was the only pictured as the only people that had COPD, Uh, and part of that had to do with uh, veterans and the fact that many veterans were given cigarettes uh, during all of our military actions, Uh, and so we did have a lot of older white men with COPD because of that. But we've recognized that that is really uh, a misconception. Actually, in this day and age, there are more women getting COPD every year than there are men, and that COPD affects people of all races and all ethnicities, uh, and that anytime you have someone that has the shortness of breath, uh, the chronic coughing, the chronic phlegm. Uh, they just seem to be more fatigued than other people their age. We really should think about COPD. And the other thing that actually became a stigma uh, was the smoking. Yes, it's true that 75% of people who have COPD have A history of significant smoking, but 25% don't, Uh, and that's not just outside the U.S., that's also in the U.S., and they have risk factors like many childhood respiratory infections, asthma long-term. They may have been exposed to secondhand smoke. Uh, Maybe their parents smoked in the car all the time and at home. There's occupational-related risk factors. So this is a condition that cuts across the genders, across race and ethnicity. Uh, And so I guess it's a uh, full-service disease. Do we say that? I don't know. (laughs) But it is something we need to recognize much more broadly than we have in the past.
0: So that's a perfect segue into my next question. Um, Since COPD is underdiagnosed, and you know people can mistake these symptoms for normal aging, um, what should healthcare professionals be looking for in a visit? And the flip side of that is, what should older adults and family members be paying attention to to make sure they're reporting it to their healthcare provider?
1: Yeah, well, let's start with the families and the patients first, because that's frequently where it gets recognized. Is You know, the person with the symptoms may simply change their activities over time. And so they don't think they're short of breath because if you spend more time sitting, reading newspapers, watching TV, uh, knitting, things like that, those don't really cause much shortness of breath. So they say, well, I don't have any symptoms. But their family recognizes that, hey, you know, you're no longer out walking with your friends, you don't want to go even to the grocery store, Uh, and when the family sort of asks questions, it turns out because they're short of breath. So it may be the family that recognizes these symptoms, and as you said, instead of assuming, well, they're just getting old, they really should encourage their family member to go in and talk to their healthcare professional about these symptoms. How about the healthcare professional? As you know, in primary care, we can be really busy and visits can be pretty short. And if someone does not come in complaining of something, it may not get addressed. And that's a very big problem for COPD and recognition. So I encourage people uh, to ask, to healthcare professionals to ask and patients to report What's my usual day like? What can I do and what can I not do? And you can ask that pretty quickly in a primary care visit. Uh, Tell me uh, just quickly about what your usual day look like. And if someone tells you their usual day looks like it takes a long time to get up and get ready in the morning. Uh, I really spend most of my day You know, without physical activity, you want to figure out why. Now, there are some screening tests for COPD that are being assessed right now. I happen to be working on one called the capture, and I think all of us hope that we're going to have a fairly simple screening test with questions and maybe a peak flow assessment. Heat flow is where you blow into a little tube and it tells you how fast and hard you can blow out. And that helps us assess lung function quickly. But those screening tests are not quite ready for prime time yet. But I hope if you ask me that same question two, three, four years from now, I'd be able to say we do have some tools to use also In addition to just remembering to report symptoms and ask about usual daily activities.
0: Yeah, so that you reminded me of a story. And I think that one of the hard things is 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 people will self-limit their activities. And so it's harder for people to to really notice, like particularly family members, but you know, looking asking the question like over the past, you know, three to six months, have you noticed that you Um, haven't been going out as much? Do do you find it takes you longer to get going in the morning? Because as clinicians, when people, like most people don't come into the clinic and go, yeah, it takes me forever to get ready in the morning because that's their normal. Like, so, so they don't pick up on it. And I remember one guy I was talking to, he was, Like extremely short of breath, had COPD, and he was, and I worked in the nursing home setting. And I said, "So, what were you doing? What was your life like before you got here?" And he goes, "Oh, I was doing fine. I was checking my mail every day. Like, I was doing great." And I said, "Well, where's your mailbox?" Because I figured it was at the end of like this mile long driveway. And he's like, "No, it's at the end of the driveway." And I thought that seems like he can barely make it to the bathroom. That seems like a really short, you know, a long distance for him to have made. And I asked him, "So, how are you checking?" Your mailbox," he said. "Well, I would walk out of my living room and get in my car and back down to the mailbox, check my mail, and I'd drive back. And I thought, you know what? We really do have to ask more questions and more clarifying questions for yes. because that was his normal. But um, so once someone is diagnosed, but um, let's talk a little bit about treatment options, and maybe you can start with some of the non-pharmacological um, treatment options available.
1: Sure. The first thing, obviously, we're going to check is if someone is still smoking uh, or if they've never smoked, fine. But if they are smoking, smoking cessation is number one on our list of the both pharmacological and non-pharmacological approaches uh, but smoking cessation is one of the two or three things we can do to support someone that actually can change the course of their COPD. If you stop smoking, and it doesn't matter if you smoke for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, if you can stop smoking, you can slow down the progression of the COPD. So that's number one, and that is a complicated problem. Uh, Thing to help support, but extremely important. The other things uh, that we want to think about are immunizations, for example. We want the person to be up to date on their immunizations. That would be the flu shot or influenza. The pneumonia And there are two types of shots for pneumonia or pneumococcal, and they're appropriate to have them both if you have COPD. Then uh, the pertussis, which comes now with the tetanus and something called Tdap, that needs to be up to date every 10 years. And actually, the shingles vaccine is important, too, because people with COPD are at increased risk for shingles. And I certainly don't want somebody with COPD to end up with shingles and the pain and the discomfort and fatigue on top of their COPD. So up to date on all their immunizations. Then activity, as you pointed out, uh, someone may have reduced their activities. And if we can slowly help them increase their activities, we know that leads to further ability to increase their activities, and it's good for many things, not just their COPD, but their health and well-being in general. So those are some of the non-pharmacological things. Um, I should mention weight, obviously, to a healthy diet. Uh, Someone who is either underweight uh, or overweight uh, may need to try to adjust their diet to get a closer to normal weight uh, so that they have adequate muscle mass but not have to uh, move so much weight when they're being active. Then pharmacological therapy. By the time we diagnose most people with COPD, they're going to need daily medication and we use The bronchodilators, these are medications that help open up the airways, which help with the obstruction or partial blockage of the airways that we have in COPD. And we have two classes of the bronchodilators. There's the beta agonist and the anti-muscarinic. And we can use one or we can use both together. And we know both of these together are better than either one separately. Uh, Then if someone is having a lot of flare-ups or exacerbations, uh, we add other medications like inhaled corticosteroids. You can go beyond those if necessary. There are other specialized medications uh, for people with chronic bronchitis with their COPD, for example, people who cough, and have lots of sputum. Uh, there are things called PDE4 inhibitors or f- rafumalas, and there's also daily or several days a week antibiotics that we can use. And then when people have more and more problems um, and their oxygen levels get low, we certainly can do oxygen therapy also. So all of these things together are important. And one of the others that I really don't want to forget is pulmonary rehabilitation. Now that has been a little more difficult to get because there aren't as many pulmonary rehab programs as there are cardiac rehab programs, but these are really important programs for education, for exercise and activity training, uh, nutrition training, actually emotional support of getting together with other people with COPD. It helps with preventing exacerbations, preventing hospitalizations, improving depression and anxiety. And now with COVID, we are starting to see more tele- or virtual pulmonary rehab. So both for healthcare professionals and patients and families, really encourage them to look for opportunities for pulmonary rehabilitation. You probably find those are useful for your patients, Melissa.
0: Yeah, well, I think the idea of having virtual pulmonary rehab um, is super interesting and, you know, telehealth certainly has become a major player in the middle of COVID. And so, and thinking about kind of the health professional team, like who are all the different people? I think it's easy to think about that team if you're going to like a pulmonary rehabilitation because you everyone's kind of in one spot. But um, if, you're, if, you, if you don't have access to a pulmonary rehab, who are some of the people that you should be thinking about and asking your primary care provider about to help put together a team for you.
1: Yeah, and it's really important because, uh, you know, as a, a primary care physician, I don't have necessarily all those team members in my office, uh, but we have uh, the certainly the physician, other clinicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, but nursing uh, in general can be extremely important with education teaching inhaler technique, checking inhaler technique, uh, looking at medications in other ways. Respiratory therapists are really an important part of this team. Uh, Yes, also for teaching medication, but also teaching breathing techniques, for example, pursed lip breathing, abdominal breathing. Physical therapy and occupational therapy can be very important, especially if you don't happen to have pulmonary rehab. They can be very helpful in helping set up an activity program. I don't usually say exercise. Some people say, "Oh, exercise bad. I can't do exercise." Well, yeah, you can, <laughs> but we just call it activity. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, going from your gentleman, you mentioned, if we can get him to walk from his front door to the mailbox in time that's exercise, but we'll call it activity. Uh, But those are part of the team. And a very important member that we don't want to forget is the pharmacist, uh, because they can be very helpful in looking at all of a patient's medications, uh, in figuring out uh, when the Person goes to pick up their medication, for example, maybe their insurance doesn't cover that particular one or has a very high copay. They can help us figure out how do we get the medication we want for that patient that they need within their insurance plan, but then help us uh, with inhaler technique, help us with the multiple medications. Because one of the things we haven't mentioned is that people with COPD very often have multiple other chronic conditions, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, osteoporosis, uh, excuse me, depression and anxiety. So they may be on multiple medications, and the pharmacist can be very helpful looking at that what we call polypharmacy.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that it's you know it's interesting how language matters, but I've um, moved towards the ter- just telling people to move naturally. You know, don't think of it as exercise, uh, but you but movement is the most important thing, and that's actually one of the blue zones, um, the first one. And then speaking about inhaler technique, I can remember my grandmother. Um, I, I, she was using her inhaler, and you could see it just kind of like puffing out the sides of her mouth, and I. Walked her through like how to actually use the inhaler, and when she inhaled the medication, she goes, "Oh my goodness!" She goes, "I could feel that all the way down in my chest." And I was like, "Oh, I think you finally just received the
1: medication." It's like, <laughs> "Yes, that's what we're trying, and yeah. that's what we're going." Yeah, and I don't think we appreciate the fact that up to eighty percent of people use their inhalers incorrectly uh, and really need us to help them. I mean, how should we assume, you know, if nobody's shown them, why should we assume they know how to do it? I mean, yeah, everybody knows how to put a pill in their mouth and swallow it, or most people do, but inhalers are not intuitive and they have to be used in different ways. The MDIs or the puffers that you push down, are used one way. The dry powder inhalers that you kind of literally have to suck the medicine in take a little bit different type of maneuvers. So I agree. I mean, you know, I, have done this in the Chicago airport with a woman that she kept blowing out instead of breathing in. And I finally just couldn't watch her anymore and said, excuse me, ma'am, and showed her how to use it. And, and, uh, when we finally got on the plane after the usual hour delay in Chicago, you know, she was talking to her daughter and say, you know what, I think this really works. <laughs> it's like, yeah. just, just like your grandma. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Uh, so, yeah, you know, we have, I was just going to say, we
0: ended up getting her a spacer because the, so there are things that can help if you're having trouble coordinating kind of like at the puff and the inhale.
1: Absolutely, uh, in you know the inhalers with the spacers are so important. I find if people are using it outside the home, they may not take the spacer with them. Uh, although you can, most of our purses are pretty big nowadays. But <laughs> you know you can use it at home, and I think spacers are an excellent idea. And you make an excellent point there. All right, so is there
0: one last point that you'd like um, to leave on um, when people think about or are hearing about COPD?
1: Well, the first thing I I always remind people is that COPD is not a death sentence. That's what I still hear people say. They're very frightened. Uh, Physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners, PAs, are reluctant sometimes to make the diagnosis. It is no longer that way. We, over the last 10 to 15 years, have had a lot of advances in making it possible for people with COPD to live pleasant, enjoyable lives that are productive. So please remember, we can do things to improve the lives of people with COPD, But only if we make the diagnosis, and as you suggested, we ask the pertinent questions uh, about being short of breath, what are your usual activities, what can you not do now easily that you could do six months or even three years ago. So being involved and taking that extra 15 to 30 seconds to get that pertinent information and for people going in to see their healthcare professional, please don't just say, well, this isn't important. They don't want to hear this. Ask. Ask about anything that you may find of concern and listen to your family. And if your family says, go ask your doctor or nurse about it, go ask. We do want to help, and we do have things we can help. The other thing is to remind them about education and resources, and the COPD Foundation has a website with a number of resources uh, that can give families, patients, and healthcare professionals lots of information about COPD. Well, thank, that's all really helpful advice.
0: So I'd like to thank you, Dr. Barbara Yawn, for helping us to understand COPD better and to thank our listeners um, today. If you'd like to read GSA's full paper on COPD, please visit geron.org slash what's hot. So it's G-E-R-O-N.org slash what's hot. Thank you. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.